Eric Girl. Hi, everybody. Hey, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Dead Time Stories. A weekly podcast where Sarah and I get together to talk about ghost stories, true crime, mysteries, cults, conspiracies, the supernatural, paranormal, or even just the generally weird, eerie, spooky, strange stuff that we want to talk about each week. Why is that, Sarah? Oh, that is because it is our show. Oh, whose isn't it? Not yours. Oh, isn't that yours? That's true. That's a fun fact. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, stop. stop. Go, Go back, back to the beginning. Listen to the beginning. Grumble Thorpe in my mouth a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little, little bit, little teeny bit, little peensy baby with. A little bit. Go back. Start over. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are. Welcome Great. Back. Welcome back. This is, we're back to our regularly scheduled bullshit. That's what I was going to say. We're back on our bullshit, which back. is recording this podcast. And even though this statement isn't true right now, but it will be by the time this podcast comes out. Halloween nights is over. Over. It's over. You've had a rest. But I'm still in Snatcherella. Yes. And you should come see it and you should tell them that Polly Wanda Cracker sent you. They're going to be like, who are you here to see? Like they do like a door vote. That's what they call that. And you and say. you tell them Polly. You tell them Polly, Polly. girlfriend. Because that's me. If you forget, put your hand in your pocket and go, oh, right, Polly. Polly. Polly pocket. Like Polly pocket. But it's Polly Wanda Cracker. Polly. That's me. Yes. You should also follow my Instagram. There you go. It's very aesthetically pleasing. It is. It's very pretty. It's a pretty Instagram. It's very pretty. Unlike our Instagram, Dead Time Stories, which it's is full of ghost memes a hot and dead mess. I used to post just, you know, the stuff about what we were talking about, and the people didn't like it as much as they liked the bullshit memes. It's true. They love the memes. Well, and that's because the people who like all the bullshit memes are also not people who regularly follow us. There's additional people that find us through the hashtags and the bullshit memes. Hashtag Annabelle. Hashtag bullshit <laughs> memes. Yes, we did get a, a huge surge with our hashtag Annabelle post. I think it's our one post that's like over a thousand likes, it's even true. though we don't have a thousand followers. I think I ran yet. an ad with it. Definitely. It was so popular. We definitely did. Y'all go follow our social media stuff. Tell your friend to follow our social media. Help us get our numbers up. Tell them to listen to our podcast. Oh, that too. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them to get on that podcast train. Val was like, I'm almost caught up. And I was like, good for you. Wow. And Val was like, you called me a dork. And I was like. I just tell that to your face all the time. That's true. I was like, aren't like, aren't you? And? But you're cute. And I'm into it. See? There you go. Because we talked about how I like dorks with big butts and nice teeth. And nice teeth. Yep. That's my type. She got a type. <laughs> she got a type. That's me. That's my type. That's my type. That's that shit I do like. That's me. What about you, Sarah? What's that shit you do like? Uh, you know, someone who the bar is set so low for us straight women. Man, sometimes. Did you see that Chris Pratt post? Oh, don't get me started. Do not get me started because you also know that that is part of my TikTok for you page is all the ex-evangelicals and all of them breaking that down and being like, oh, Lord, Everything have mercy. This, this is the fucking, you know, it's the whole, I think they're calling it um, hot wife sort of mm. things. I don't want to say syndrome, but like, you know, hot wife, which I experienced this, but every pastor, every youth pastor, every man in some form of power or stage presence at a church will always reference his wife and he will always only reference and praise her looks and how she's smoking hot 
or how she supports him and yes. does the cooking and the cleaning and helps raise the children so he can go out there yes. and preach the gospel. And she's so supportive of him and look how smoking hot she is. And just that's that's her worth. Her worth is cleaning how the house. supports me and my Being work. hot, supporting me and popping out babies. Yeah. And one of the things Ooh, that I could go off, you I could. One of the other things people pointed out is that he was like, and she gave me a healthy baby, and he has another. He has a son who has disabilities. Yes, and I was like, wow, bro. And then to look through the, co- I was just like, I saw that post, and I was like, wow, the bar for for men is so low, so it low, so low, so low, and like. There were so many comments where all these people were like, so amazing, beautiful couple. And I was like, I was just like, y'all are disgusting. Y'all are so gross. Disgusting. Y'all are wrong. Yeah. I don't even, I don't even want to get started on it. Well, we already got started on it, but we're going to abandon that. Yeah. Let's leave that alone. Chris Pratt did with his first family. (sighs) Honestly, though, Anna Ferris is better off. She's better off. She's better better off without him. That is a fact. He, we we mm, stand on a Ferris at this podcast. Absolutely. One hundred percent. Chris Pratt made a turn for the worst. It's unfortunate. Pratt is Pratt is wet. He used to be funny. He used to be a lot of things. He used to yeah. We're gonna leave that man behind. Let's let's move on with our lives. Yeah. Hey Sarah. Hey Stephanie. Hey, hey Chris Leslie. Pratt. Leslie. <laughs> Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? It's part two. It's part two. The so, deucening. So content warning again, especially because I'll give uh, a pretty graphic description of some stuff that happened to some victims. But we are talking about the happy face killer today. So catching up uh, from last week, right? So we had the murder of Tanya Bennett. And we had two people convicted of her murder. It was John Sosnovsky and his girlfriend at the time, because I assume they're not together. They anymore. didn't. That relationship Laverne didn't survive. Pavlinak. So Laverne Pavlinak, oh, she at first said that her uh, longtime boyfriend John Sosnovsky had committed this murder, and then she said that like that she helped, that she was in on it. And ultimately, she was convicted, and he pled guilty. He pled no contest in order to avoid the death penalty. But there was no forensic evidence that actually tied them to that crime. There did appear to be some falsified forensic evidence on Laverne's part. Oh, really? Oh, the handbag? (laughs) The purse with the piece of jeans, right? Yeah, her lie did more than snowball. It avalanched, girl. She went hard she committed to that choice so meanwhile during her trial graffiti was found handwritten graffiti in two truck stop bathrooms that was you know and in like 150 miles in opposite directions from where tanya's body was found saying that this person was like was admitting to having killed her and that two people were going to jail to, and he was scot-free, and one of them was signed with a smiley face. And then moving forward a few years, letters were being sent to different media outlets and different police departments that were giving details of Tanya's murder and other murders, and they were signed with a smiley face. So that was where we left off. Question yes. about the bathroom writings. You say yes. only one of them was signed with a smiley face? Yes. Do they think that both of those were written by the same person? I'm not sure. Okay. I believe I believe so. I think that that was the conclusion that they came to, but I'm not positive. Okay. 
In March of 1995, another woman's body was found nude in the bushes by the riverbank on the north side of the Columbia River Gorge. Okay. Tanya Tanya Bennett's body was found on the south side. Yes. So it was in an area that was like that was similar, but it was on the opposite side of the river in the gorge. And this is a huge area. Mm-hmm. Um, so they weren't like, you know, left next to each other, but basically across the river from where the other body had been found. Got it. But not in the water. It was in the bushes, like near the river. Okay. Okay. This one was found totally naked, no clothing, no purse, no identification was found on the woman's body. Uh, an autopsy determined that the cause of death was manual strangulation, and her body was later identified by her fingerprints, and she was a woman named Julie Winningham. So Julie's best friend described her as fun. Uh, she was silly. She was the life of the party. Mm-hmm. She was very small. She was only 5'2", but everyone said she had a huge personality. Yeah. Uh, she always kept her hair really, really short. Uh, she had a little bit of a wild side, so she liked to party and have a good time. And her and her best friend had grown up together. Julie was almost considered like a second mother to her children, so she was very, very close with Julie. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, shortly before her disappearance, the two actually got in a big fight about Julie's drinking and partying. Oh. And she told Julie that she needed to leave, and that was the last time that she saw Judy oh, and Julie. That sucks. Yeah. Investigators learned that Julie was intimately involved with a long-haul truck driver, and friends could describe him, but almost nobody was sure of his name. Everybody <gasps> was like, his name was like Chris or T- like Jerry, or like I can't remember. And everyone could physically describe him. They were like, he's like 6'6", tall guy, he's really big, he's like 300 pounds, kind of built, but like just a big dude. He's a big dude. And, but no one for the life of them could remember this guy's name. But everyone was like, yeah, like her and this guy, they've been together like a while. I think they're pretty serious. Some people even said that they were engaged, described him as her fiance huh. versus her boyfriend. Yeah. Um, but nobody could remember this dude's name. <laughs> The biggest break in the case came when law enforcement met a woman named Bonnie Vanelstein, and she was previously a waitress at a truck stop where Julie used to go get coffee all the time, and that Mm -hmm. was how they became friends. And the two were really friendly with each other enough that Bonnie had actually purchased a used car from Julie within the past couple of weeks. Julie Mm -hmm. was getting rid of a car, and... Bonnie bought it and had a, like, bill of sale that was handwritten. Mm -hmm. And the document was signed by Julie Winningham with a witness signature from a man named Keith Hunter Jesperson. Okay. He's a three-namer. So they were like, okay, that's a name we can go on. And it turns out he was a trucker. The investigators had a name and another key detail that he drove a blue rig. So that gave them a little more information because a lot of trucking companies, like they have a specific look to like their actual rigs that Mm -hmm. carry like their trailers or whatever. Yeah. And there was a trucking company who all of their trucks had blue rigs called TWT Trucking. And they spoke with the management of TWT, who told them that Jesperson was a trucker with their trucking company, and he was due to arrive in New Mexico with a delivery in two days. So he was met by police, and he came in with no resistance to answer questions about Julie's murder, but he gave no incriminating answers. A few days later, he left a voicemail for one of the lead investigators, saying that he was turning himself in in the morning. Upon doing so, he told them that he had attempted to take his own life twice before deciding to come forward. He also wrote a letter to his brother confessing, I've been a killer for five years and I have killed eight people. What? 
And he said, I guess I haven't learned anything. (sighs) At the time, investigators did not know about the letter. They were only questioning him about Julie. That was the only thing that they had any idea that he might be connected to. They did not suspect him for Tanya or for any of the other murders. They were just questioning him about Julie. He had one call, (laughs) one phone call. He called his brother and he asked his brother to flush the letter down the toilet. (gasps) His brother on the phone pretended to flush the letter down the toilet and then handed the letter over to the police. Good for him. Good move. Uh, So the letter to Jesperson's brother matched the handwriting of the happy face killer. The letters that had previously been sent to media and law enforcement agencies. After his arrest and Jesperson uh, and like being confronted about the letters, Jesperson was very eager to take on interviews and talk about his life and the crimes that so he did. So now he's like proud with many other news outlets. Ugh. So he had become a trucker in like the late 80s, like early, uh, 1990s when the first murder happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the late 80s, he became a trucker and he kind of had a power trip from like growing up how he did. So he was like a big kid and people bullied him and picked on him a lot. So he had all kinds of complexes about like how people treated him. Of course, Um, whatever he had been married. He had uh, a couple kids and then he got divorced. Tanya was a person that he dated like after or not Tanya. Sorry. Oh, I was like, Julie was a person that he dated after like getting divorced. Okay. Okay. But kind of when he was driving a truck, he kind of realized, like, you know, I could probably get away with murder as a truck driver because you're going from state to state. And we know, like we talked about with Ted Bundy, like they didn't talk. They don't really talk to each other between states, between jurisdictions. And he was like, you know, I could probably get away with a lot. Mm -hmm. So he was arrested. And when they were talking about the happy face killer, like, okay, did you kill Tanya Bennett? Like, who else did you kill? So Jesperson described the details of how he met and murdered Tanya Bennett (gasps) in the bar where she was last seen. (gasps) So the bar where she was last seen, she was a regular there. And the waitress had said like she was talking to her and there were like some guys playing pool and like she was finishing her job or whatever. And she turned around and Tanya and those guys were gone. So she kind of assumed she went with those two guys, but nothing ever came from that. Those two guys were nobody important. Yeah. They they just happened to leave at the same time. Yeah. So Jesperson said that he was in the bar and that Tanya had actually approached him and hugged him like she already knew him. Which remember, I said that her family she said she little... was kind of naive and she was quick to trust people and quick to get really friendly with people. Aww. Yeah. So he said that she approached him and she hugged him and she kind of acted like she already knew him. So he was like, hey, do you want to come back to my get place? Murdered? So she agreed to go home with him. And at his house, apparently, she said something that angered him, and he just began to beat her. And he put a rope around her neck and strangled her to death. He cut the buttons off of her jeans, not as a souvenir, but because he was afraid he was going to leave, like, DNA or fingerprints on the buttons. And so he cut the buttons out and got rid of that strip of buttons because he thought there would be, like, some sort of evidence on them that they could use to find him. That was why the buttons were cut off, not as a souvenir. Wow. And then he left her body 
where he did. And when those people came forward and said that they did it, he was like, all right. (laughs) I really can't. Those people even confessed to doing it. So he killed Tanya Bennett. That was in Corbett, Oregon in January of 1990. His second victim is a Jane Doe who still to this day has never been identified. He has a few of those where he was able to lead them to the remains but they couldn't identify these women from their remains. Oh, my gosh. So this woman's name, he said her name was Claudia. She's still a Jane Doe. This was in Blythe, California in August of 1992. A lot of these women were drifters or sex workers. Like, yeah. he picked people that he felt like no one would, no notice. One would notice or it would, you know, one would really do anything about it. His third victim was Cynthia Lynn Rose Wilcox, in Turlock, California, in September of 1992. Uh, victim number four was Lori Ann Pentland in Salem, Oregon, November 1992. Mm. He said that she was a sex worker that he, you know, had, you know, said arranged to have sex with. And that afterward, she tried to charge him more than they had agreed upon. And he got angry and killed her. His fifth victim was a woman. He said her name was Carla. She was never properly identified, but he led police to her remains. That was in Santanella, California, in June of 1993. His sixth victim was a woman. He said her name was Suzanne. Again, her uh, she's a real Jane Doe. She's never actually been identified. That was in Crestview, Florida, in September of 1994. His seventh victim This is the one where I was like, this is really terrible. What I'm going to tell you he did after murdering her. Her name was Angela Subreeze. She was in Gothenburg, uh, Nebraska. He killed her in January of 1995. After killing her, he tied her body under the truck and he dragged her for miles in an attempt to destroy the evidence and the identity of her body. Her body has never fully been found. They could only find parts, basically, and remains. Details that he led them where to find those remains. And his eighth and final victim was Julie Winningham. So what happened there if he'd been dating her for so long for him to suddenly decide to kill her? Well, he hadn't been dating her for for so long. They had been dating for like a few months. I think they got engaged pretty quickly. Um, Because, like I said, it was after his divorce. Mm -hmm. But he was dating Julie, and he said that, like, she met him at a truck stop to have sex with him in his truck, that they had sex one time, and he wanted to have sex again, and she didn't, and he strangled her. Yeah. What an asshole. That's what happened there. So, ultimately, um, he was arrested on uh, March 30th of 1995 for the murder of Julie Winningham. He'd been questioned by police before, like I said, but nothing happened. They didn't really get anything. Then yeah. he tri- he said he tried to kill himself. All of that happened. So although at one point Jesperson claimed to have killed as many as 185 people, only the eight women killed in Washington, Oregon, California, Florida, Nebraska, and Wyoming have been confirmed. He is still alive. He is currently serving three consecutive life sentences at the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem. In September 2009, he was indicted in and extradited to Riverside County, California on murder charges in December of 2009, where he was convicted of another murder and received a fourth life sentence in January of 2010. 
another murder outside of the eight that we already know? Um, or one uh, it was of the one eight? of the eight. Okay. Yeah. Do you actually think he killed like 185 people? No, yeah. I don't believe he actually killed 185 people. Sounds like he just got cocky and thought he would take this ride. On the 7th of January, 1996, so after he came forward and he was arrested for that, more than five years after their conviction, Laverne Pavlinak and John Sosnovsky were released from prison after Jesperson and his attorney offered his confession with convincing evidence of his guilt. He had given police officers the location of the victim's purse. The purse had not been found at the crime scene, and its location was considered information only the killer would know. Mm-hmm. Going back to Laverne. Yeah. How's he, Laverne doing? I mean, Laverne passed away in 2003, but oh. she was out of prison. She ended up serving. She still served time for falsifying evidence. John uh, Sosnovsky, like, he spent time in prison. He had nothing to do with that crime. He was exonerated, but, like, at what cost? Like, yeah. wild. But what else was I going to say about Laverne? Oh, people were like, how did Laverne know all of those details? Like, especially the big one was how did she know where the body was? Yeah. Because when she went to the, when she was like, yeah, this is where we dumped the body, she was accurate. So she said all the details. All of the details that she had, she had from newspaper clippings that she had clipped and she had kept in that purse that she was like, oh, my God, it's her purse. Yeah. And at one point when she was in the police station, when no one was looking, she like looked at the search warrant and was just checking all the information of the stuff that they had and the stuff that they were looking for. Oh, my God. And when they went to the location, because she knew from the papers and stuff where the general area was, where the general location was. And she said when they took her there, because they were like, you were so close to where the spot was. How did you know exactly where the spot was? She said that she could tell because of all the tire tracks and the footprints where people had been looking, where the crime scene was based on all the foot traffic and all of the tire marks that this was the area that they had been searching. And that was how she was like, yeah, it was over here. She's like, yeah, it was over here. And there's like the crime scene tape. Up yes. The tree. <laughs> I mean, now the tape wasn't. Yeah, correct. The tape was not there. <laughs> but that was how she was like, because this I could tell like people had it been digging hard. here. There were like tire tracks. There were footprints. Like clearly people were looking around in this area. That was she how I knew. really leaned into this lie. Isn't that wild? In November of 2008, Jesperson's daughter because remember I said mm-hmm. he, he, he had was married a family and a kid. And kids. Uh, Melissa G. Moore, she appeared on Dr. Phil to talk about her father. She was also featured on the Oprah Winfrey show. She uh, There was a Lifetime movie and a series called Monster in My Family based mm. on her life. In 2008, she published a book titled Shattered Silence, The Untold Story of a Serial Killer's Daughter. Moore recounts living with Jesperson until her parents' divorce in 1990, which is when he began killing, and noticing how her father was different when she was in elementary school. Their house bordered on an apple orchard, and Jesperson killed stray cats and gophers that wandered nearby. One day, she said she watched horrified as he hung stray kittens from the family's clothesline. Mm. She ran to get her mother, and when they returned, the kittens were dead on the ground. He had watched and laughed as the kittens clawed at each other, trying to escape while they were hanging. Mm. I hate that. She wrote an article about her father for BBC in November of 2014. In March 2018, she was featured on an episode titled Put on a Happy Face of the true crime series Evil Lives Here. 
She was a correspondent for Crime Watch Daily. Uh, in 2018, the podcast network of How Stuff Works began releasing a show called Happy Face, featuring interviews with Melissa about her childhood and her father. And in June of 2021, a trailer appeared for an iTunes show, which started this August, which is her and a forensic criminologist named Dr. Laura Petler called Life After Happy Face, where the first couple of episodes are about like her life and what that was like. Um, but in other episodes, she and her co-host interview people who have been either survivors or victims or family members of like a major wow. serial killer case. Wow. That's interesting. And that is the legacy of the happy face killer. He, like I said, is still alive. He is serving time in prison. He is now That's serving cool. four life sentences. He went Piece from shit. three to four. Oh, and. Good. That's uh, that's how that story goes. That's crazy. And that's the happy face killer. And yeah, there's nothing happy about any of that BS. Except like that he's in, in jail. Except he's in jail. But the other thing is, the bigger question that's really sad and really difficult to think about is not just like what Laverne Pavlinok did to herself and her boyfriend who was completely innocent. Oh my God. But if she hadn't completely derailed that investigation in the first year, could he have been caught and could they have prevented the deaths of seven other women? Yeah, that's hard to think about. That to me is like the the more like I mean, not the more the fact that he's a murderer and, and a rapist. Oh, sure, is yeah, the yeah, yeah. Like it's not. Her but of all the but... things about her terrible lie that imprisoned an innocent man, it also is like how many lives could have been saved by her not derailing that investigation. Yes. Ugh. Oh, Laverne, girl. And girl. that's the end of my two-part story on the Happy Face Killer. Wow. Well, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Sarah, what are you talking about this week? All right. Well, um, I'll. It's not lightning. Lighting it up. Lightning it up. Light. Excuse me. I What's apologize. happening over here? It is. Uh, it's not going to lighten up. The lighten mood, up the mood. Yes. That's what I'm trying to say. All right, get ready. Things are hard. But no, this this week is nice because this week I am doing an American folklore folk Ooh, tale. Get it? Folklore. And it's been a minute and I forgot. I totally forgot this about the great things about folklore. Folk tales is um, you don't have to do a ton of research because it's just a story. And so I just have to learn the story to tell you the story. So this is a story that I think you'll love. It uh, is in West Virginia. And it's the story of Screaming Jenny. No. <laughs> no, Sarah. And, and she's a skinwalker. And the fucking detector goes off. <gasps> Ooh. Did you say she's a smoke? She's, she's a fucking skinwalker. Skin <laughs> Is she, though? No. Okay. She's a ghost. Well, she was a person. Anyways. <laughs> she was a person. We'll get into it. Us. Yeah, sure. Screaming Jenny. No. <laughs> Is an American folktale out of West Virginia. Um, I will read the story, and I, the version I'm going to read is one that's retold by an author named S. E. Schlosser in their Schlosser. Schlosser in their book titled Spooky South. Now, as I was looking into this, I came across this website, AmericanFolklore.net, and that's where I saw the story written by S. E. Schlosser 
for the spooky s- series, Spooky South. And I was like, oh, there's a whole series? Let me click on that. Coming to find out, all of these books are all written by S.E. Slosher. In fact, this whole website is all of her work. It's just her stuff. And she's written like 50 plus books with ghost stories, retelling old folklore. Get it, She's girl. got like spooky South, spooky California, spooky Texas, spooky Mississippi, like all these spooky things. Spooky M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I? Yes, it's scary. The very same. That's her. But she does, you know, she's she seems to have a lot going on. And she's written a whole bunch of folklore. So if you're interested at all, it's pretty cool. Americanfolklore.net. What'd you call me? I called you an American folklore. Lahore? Who's she? Uh, S.E. Slosser, <laughs> the author. <laughs> all right. And so this is the tale, the story of Screaming Jenny. I haven't even started. I'm Give Jenny a chance. The old storage sheds along the tracks were abandoned shortly after the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad was built, and it wasn't long before the poor folk of the area moved in. The sheds provided shelter, of a sort, although the winter wind still pierced through every crevice and the small fireplaces that the poor constructed did little to keep the cold at bay. A gentle, kindly woman named Jenny lived alone in one of the smaller sheds. She had fallen on hard times and had no family to protect her. She was forced to find work where she could and take whatever shelter was available to someone with little money. Jenny never had enough to eat, and in winter her tiny fire barely kept her alive during the cold months. Still, she kept her spirits up and tried to help other folks when they took sick or needed food, sometimes going without herself so that another could eat. Could eat. So that another could eat. Could eat. (laughs) Eat. One cold evening in late autumn, Jenny sat shivering over her fire, drinking broth out of a wooden bowl. When a spark flew from the fire and lit her skirts on fire, intent on filling her aching stomach, Jenny did not notice her flaming clothes until the fire had burnt through the heavy wool of her skirt and began to scorch her skin. Leaping up in terror, Jenny threw the broth over the flames, but the fluid did nothing to douse the fire. In terror, Jenny fled from the shack and ran along the train tracks, screaming for help as the flames engulfed her body. The station was not far away, and instinctively Jenny made for it, hoping to find someone to aid her. Within moments, her body was a glowing inferno, and Jenny was overwhelmed with pain. Her screams grew more horrible as her steps slowed. She staggered blindly onto the tracks just west of the station, a ball of fire that barely looked human. In her agony... She did not see the glowing headlight of the train rounding the curve, or hear the screech of the brakes as the engineer spotted her fire-eaten figure and tried to stop. A moment later, her terrible screams broke off as the train train yeeted her down. (laughs) Yeeted her from this mortal coil. (laughs) The train mowed her down. Alerted by the whistle, the crew from the station came running as the engineer halted the train and ran back down the tracks toward poor dead Jenny, who was still burning. The men doused the the fire and carried her body back to the station. She was given a pauper's funeral and buried in an unmarked grave in the local churchyard. Within a few days, another poverty-stricken family had moved into her shack, and Jenny was forgotten. Forgotten, that is, until a month later 
when a train rounding the bend west of the station was confronted by a screaming ball of fire. Too late to stop, the engineer plowed over the glowing figure before he could bring the train to a screeching halt. Leaping from the engine, he ran back down the tracks to search for a mangled burning body, but there was nothing there. Shaken, he brought his train into the station and reported the incident to the station master. Station master. After hearing this tale, the station master remembered poor, dead Jenny and realized that her ghost had returned to haunt the tracks where she had died. To this day, the phantom of screaming Jenny still appears on the tracks on the anniversary of the day she died. Many an engineer has rounded the curve just west of the station and found himself face to face with the burning ghost of Jenny, screaming Jenny. As once she makes nope. her deadly run towards the Harper's Ferry station, nope. seeking in vain for someone to save her. I hate it. And that's the tale of Screaming Jenny in West Virginia. I don't like it. In Harper's, Harper's Ferry Station. So being the Harper's Ferry Station on the anniversary of her death, which we don't know what that date is, you might come across How a screaming you know? ball of fire. That's the only way you would know is if um, it's that's the day. You're like, oh, oh Jenny's here. That Jenny's must be the here. anniversary of her the death. Day she died. That's it. There she is. That's spooky. And she's out there like, ah. So she got eaten on fire. And I she's hate screaming it. and on fire. I don't like. Eat. I hate both of those. It's both of those. I did that for you. Okay, I did it for you. Thanks. This is for you. The story I, of screaming Jenny is for you. Uh, no, no returns, refunds, or exchanges. Yeah. All sales final. I don't like that. All Jenny's final. Lee dead. That's it. That's it. Those are our stories. We hope you guys are spooked. We hope you're happy we're back to just us, right? Brum, 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 brum. Appreciate you. You should really subscribe to our Patreon because this month. Oh, it's, it's the, the end of last an era. Film so far in the Saw franchise. The last film. Until they make another one. Until they make another one. That's right. This month I'm talking about Spiral with Chris Rock and Samuel L. Jackson. You should subscribe to our Patreon so you can hear me describe all of the Saw movies to you so you don't have to watch them again. Sarah told me that she is genuinely sad that this is going to be the last movie. I honestly am. You fall in love with it, right? I have. You fall in love with the the lore. Yep. I love it. So you should totally check that out by subscribing to our Patreon. We have one, five, ten, and fifteen dollar tiers. You can get merch at our website, deadtimestories with a z.com. You can email us at deadtimestories at gmail.com. And we are on all the social media networks. But the best way that you can support us that doesn't cost you any money is to leave us a five star review on iTunes. So easy. And anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. Hit that five stars in the comments. Just write two thumbs up. And that's all you have. It takes three seconds. Yeah, man. Then you log into your other email account that and you have. You, do, and you leave one from that email address too. And for that one, you can do five stars, and you can write "I liked it?" question mark And then you as log long into as you your, leave the five stars. That's the important part. That's really all that we care then about. You log into your work email, and then you get on there and you click that five star button, and then you write a detailed paragraph about everything that you love about the show. Tell us how much you love us. Your favorite episode. Yes. How long you've been listening? Yes. Long time listener, first time caller. First time reviewer, but it's not because you've already been in there and done it before. Because by then you're on your third email address. Yes. So. Well, I want to thank everybody for listening this week. Do all the things that we told you to do. I'm Stephanie. You got homework. I'm Sarah. And this has been Dead Time Stories. Thank you for listening. 
Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Ferguson. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. 